Okay, good day, mate. 40 here. Let's uh, turn things over to Tucker Carlson. Let's see what the Tuck has to say. Jesse Waters on Fox now outdrawing, getting better ratings than Tucker Carlson. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. The promise of a meritocratic society is that the most capable people will rise to the positions of the greatest authority. In a meritocracy, for example, you would hire heart surgeons because they're good at heart surgery, not because of how they look or who their parents are. A meritocracy is the only fair way to run a society, and fairness matters to people, always everywhere. Plus, it works well. Fewer people die on the operating table when you do it that way. For generations, this is how American society ran. If you were smart and you worked hard, you could compete on pretty much equal footing against anyone else in America. They tell you that was never true, but it was true. It was called the American dream. People moved here from all over the world to partake in that system. But there was a political problem with it. If you've got a meritocratic society, it's pretty hard to play race politics because race plays no role in advancement. Individual initiative is what matters. Group interests are irrelevant in a meritocracy. Now, that may sound idyllic to you. It may sound like the kind of country you'd want to live in. But for the Democratic Party, it was a disaster. How do you get your voters to the polls if they're not racially aggrieved? It's hard. So at the tail end of the civil rights movement, after all the legislation guaranteeing equality under the law had already been passed, Democrats introduced a new concept. They called it affirmative action. The idea was to punish or reward Americans based on the color of their skin. Ironically, this was precisely the evil practice that the civil rights movement was designed to abolish. Racial discrimination was unequivocally wrong. That was the whole point of the skirmish on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and the March on Washington. Oh, but no, said Democrats, slyly repainting the slogans on the barn. Actually, racial discrimination can be good. It all depends on who's being discriminated against. That was their argument. That is still their argument more than 50 years later. But even now, after all of this time, most people, if you explain it clearly, don't really buy it. Wait, I can't have a job or get into college or get a federal contract because I was born with the wrong skin color? That sounds wrong. And of course, they're right. Affirmative action is wrong. It's totally immoral. It's completely unfair. And now, for the first time in years, the Democratic Party is being forced to defend it in public. The Supreme Court is now considering a case about affirmative action in college admissions, at Harvard specifically. Because they understand that their power depends on maintaining the racial spoil system they created, Democrats are defending the indefensible with maximum ferocity. Unfortunately for them, it's not that easy to do. Affirmative action is not only the very definition of racism, it's also highly embarrassing in its particulars. The closer you get to it, the more embarrassing it is. When you elevate people on the basis of their appearance, you tend not to get very impressive people. Why would you? Unless you're buying sunscreen, skin tone is a totally irrelevant criterion. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor unwittingly made that point today. Sotomayor openly concedes that she got her job because of affirmative action. She was completely and demonstrably unqualified for the position. Obama chose her because of the way she looked. Now that may sound deranged, but it actually happened. No one disputes it. Today, we saw the consequences of this. During oral arguments, Sotomayor made a mistake that no first-year law student would ever make. She repeatedly confused the terms de facto and de jure. Now, if you're a lawyer, that is an inconceivable mistake. It's like your local service station confusing gasoline with diesel fuel. It doesn't happen because the terms have entirely different meanings. 
De facto means something that's not in the law but happens anyway. De jure means something that is happening that is sanctioned by the law. See the distinction? Of course you do. And you're not even a Supreme Court justice. But Sonia Sotomayor doesn't see it. Watch. So even if we have de jure discrimination now or segregation now, Congress can't look at that? Because we certainly have de jure segregation. The races are treated very differently in our society in terms of their access to opportunity. We have racial segregation under the law in America? That's what Justice Sonia Sotomayor just said. Why is this woman wearing a robe? Even after Justice Alito corrected her, Sotomayor kept saying it. There's de jure segregation, or she said de jure segregation in 2022. Jim Crow is still on the books. Okay, this is the society that affirmative action has created. Sonia Sotomayor doesn't know what de jure means. Kentaji Brown-Jackson can't define what a woman is. It's hard to imagine a more damning case against affirmative action than its results. And it's always going to be that way because the color of your skin is irrelevant. And if we don't believe that, then everything falls apart. So as the arguments went on, the case against affirmative action somehow got stronger. Watch this exchange between Brett Kavanaugh and a state solicitor general. How are uh, applicants from Middle Eastern countries classified from Jordan, Iraq, Iran, uh, Egypt, and the like? My understanding is that uh, just like uh, other situations uh, where they might not fit within the particular boxes on the common application, that we rely on self-reporting and we would ask, uh, you know, they can volunteer uh, their particular country of origin. But if they honestly check one of the boxes, which one are they supposed to check? I I do not know the answer to that question. So just to remind you something you already know, but probably never think about, the U.S. government collects data on people's races. Now, in a society where we're all equal as citizens under the law, why would they do that? That's what the Nazis did. So we're against keeping track of people on the basis of race, aren't we? And with so much at stake, how do we determine someone's race? How long before we're taking blood tests or measuring the shape of people's heads? It's been done before. It happens in other countries to this day. It's really dark and disgusting. So the question in that exchange was, what box do the Middle Easterners check? Oh, no idea. But of course, everyone knows the answer. If you want to get into competitive school, the best bet for those Middle Easterners would be to identify as black. And studies prove it. According to a 2009 study by Princeton sociologist Tom and Espenshade, selective schools currently boost black applicants to the point that whites are penalized 310 points on the SAT for being white. Asians are penalized 450 points for being Asian. Talk about systemic racism. How is that allowed in this country? Well, good question. And if anything, this systemic racism, and that's exactly what it is, it's racism at the systemic level, has intensified over the past decade, in case you haven't noticed. In 2020, a trial court found that at Harvard, skin color was determinative in admissions for more than half of all admitted African-American applicants and roughly one-third of Hispanic applicants. How patronizing, by the way, to them. Look at this chart. It shows the average SAT score for admitted students by race at Harvard from 2000 to 2017. It's almost unbelievable how different the standards are. And this is happening, of course, not simply at Harvard, not simply at other schools, but all over the entire society. A few years ago, a senior fellow at AEI called Mark Perry found that black and Hispanic students were heavily favored for admission into medical schools. 
Black students who had below average test scores were seven times more likely to be accepted into medical school compared to white students with similar below average scores. And they were nine times more likely when compared to Asian students with similar scores. That's medical school. In the end, you will have bad doctors, not because African-American students make bad doctors, but because the process of picking people on the basis of irrelevant criteria, like their skin tone, is insane. It has nothing to do with medicine at all. In fact, the practice itself discredits the medical schools that engage in it because it's so anti-science. This should make you uneasy. But wait, it gets worse. Here's an exchange from today. Clarence Thomas asked the Solicitor General what the educational benefits of affirmative action might be. Here's the response. So the most concrete possible uh, scenario is, is stock trading. And there are studies that find that racially diverse groups of people making trading decisions perform at a higher level, make more efficient trading decisions. And the mechanism there uh, is that it reduces groupthink and people have longer and more sustained disagreement. And that leads to a more efficient outcome. Well, I guess I don't put much stock in that because I've heard similar arguments in favor of segregation, too. So <laughs> racial quotas decrease groupthink and allow for a diversity of viewpoint? Really, you live in a society that is defined by racial quotas. Is there more or less groupthink than there was when you were a kid? Is there a greater or smaller diversity of views than there used to be? It's, it's insane. But the point is, to Clarence Thomas, it sounded very familiar. Quote, I've heard similar arguments in favor of segregation, too, said Thomas, who grew up under Jim Crow in Georgia. Not surprising because all racist arguments sound the same because fundamentally they are the same. Give me this because of how I was born. It was wrong then. It's every bit as wrong now. The difference is we no longer acknowledge the victims of it. And most are too ashamed to say a word. But millions of them exist by definition. There are people like Caitlin Younger, who's a middle class white girl from Texas with no family connections or special advantages. All she had was hard work and intelligence. She scored a near-perfect 1550 on the SAT. Apparently, she thought the system was fair enough to acknowledge her achievement. She was told, work hard, do the right thing, and you'll be rewarded. Oh, but she wasn't, and we know why. She was turned down from every selective college she applied to because of her skin color. How do you feel about that? How do liberals feel about that? Does anyone really want to live in a country like that? Well, if you do, Kristen Clark does. Clark runs the so-called Civil Rights Division at DOJ. Clark didn't get the job because she cares about civil rights. <laughs> no, she was hired because she opposes civil rights. And she has her entire public life. In 2020, she's also imbalanced, Clark declared publicly that her political opponents should be killed. In response to a video of people chanting, fire Fauci, here's what she wrote. We're quoting, head of the civil rights division. These people should be publicly identified and named, barred from treatment at any public hospital if and when they fall ill and denied coverage under their insurance. Oh, just genocide them. Okay, that was her solution. So affirmative action allows lunatics with violent fantasies like Kristen Clark to ascend to power. And they can do that because as they become more powerful, they continue to claim that they are victims. But they're not victims. Kristen Clark went to private school before she went to college. Of course, she's a product of privilege. What's interesting is that even as they tell you affirmative action is our single most important social policy, you're not allowed to single out any individual person who's benefited from it. Oh, it's great, but you can't say you got your job because of it. And of course, it's totally not allowed to point out that people like Kristen Clark are unqualified for the jobs they hold. It's an insult to protected groups. 
But how are those protected groups doing? Are they benefiting from generations of affirmative action? Oh, no, they're not. The kids of doctors are benefiting from affirmative action. And we know that. SAT results for black high school students are still abysmal. No one's helping them. 25% of Asian high schoolers in Michigan, for example, scored above a 1,400 last year in the SAT. What percentage of black kids did? Zero. So how are they being helped? Well, they're not being helped. Again, the children of nonprofit executives and doctors and network news anchors and Barack Obama, they're all benefiting. But the people who need it are getting no benefit whatsoever. In fact, they're being completely ignored. This is nonsensical, it's immoral, and it's ridiculous. And so, not surprisingly, the arguments we're hearing in favor of it today. According to Scientific American, for example, science compels a racial spoil system. This is real. Quote, the Supreme Court could destroy affirmative action in higher education and STEM professionals, science, must stand against the white supremacy and scientific racism that fuels arguments against it. So you're a white supremacist if you're against racial discrimination. Okay. Now, in a normal world, you would just dismiss that out of hand because it's deranged. It's the opposite of the truth. You are not a racist for arguing on behalf of a colorblind society. You are a good person arguing against bad people. In fact, arguing against racists. But they've inverted that and successfully cowed people into silence. So Joe Biden's Solicitor General, the former Miss Idaho he hired, argued today that affirmative action is somehow vital for national security too. Watch. Our armed forces know from hard experience that when we do not have a diverse officer corps that is broadly reflective of a diverse fighting force, our strength and cohesion and military readiness suffer. So it is a critical national security imperative to attain diversity within the officer corps. And at present, it's not possible to achieve that diversity without race-conscious admissions, including at the nation's service academies. The military experience confirms what this court recognized in Grutter, that in a society where race unfortunately still matters in countless ways, achieving diversity can sometimes require conscious acts by our leading educational institutions. Okay, so does she know anything about the subject, Miss Idaho? Do you? Do you? No, she doesn't. The U.S. military was the single most impressive institution in American life for generations precisely because it was meritocratic, because people advanced on the basis of individual effort and not on the basis of group interest. It has been completely corrupted in the most recent generation and that corruption has accelerated under Joe Biden. And the result of that, well, the army is now dramatically short of its recruitment goal because nobody, no normal person of any color wants to join a rigged system. That's the truth. They've wrecked the military with this mind poison, which is evil. It was evil when it was practiced in the South 60 years ago, and it's evil now. Vivek Ramaswamy is an entrepreneur and author of Nation of Victims. He's a graduate of Yale Law School and Harvard undergrad. He joins us tonight. So Vivek, thank you so much for coming on. Um, why is this, and, and I notice that no one on the right wants to touch this because they're afraid or whatever. I don't know why it's so hard to defend a colorblind meritocracy since that's America, but why do you think this is an important fight? 
Look, it's important for so many reasons, but the first of them, even from my own experiences at some of those elite institutions, Tucker, is that affirmative action simply does not work to even help the very people it's supposed right. to help. Because exactly. if it did help those people, then you wouldn't need to apply it to the same groups to get into boarding school, who then need to be the exact same groups who benefit from it and in getting into college, who then need to benefit from the exact same thing getting into graduate school, who are then the exact same groups who benefit from it in the professional workforce. If it was working, you wouldn't need it at every step of the cascade. And here's the thing, Tucker. Nobody makes a case for affirmative action in the NBA. Nobody makes a case for affirmative action in the NFL because they know Why? that would ruin basketball and it would ruin yeah. football. None of us would want to watch it. Why do we think it's any different with, when it comes to science or engineering? And I will tell you from my experience in the classroom or otherwise, I think that that's exactly what's happening in our culture is we have an assault on meritocracy and an assault on excellence. And I think that's an assault on the American soul. We need to put the merit back in America. It's probably why most legal immigrants actually legally come to this country. It's why my parents came here. And we're at risk of losing it unless we end affirmative action, which I think the Supreme Court has an opportunity to do right now. Well, that's exactly right. People from around the world understood, despite what the academy tells us, that it was a pretty fair system, fairest in the world anyway, and they came here as a result. I just don't understand if the NBA is too important to destroy with affirmative action, then why is it okay at flight schools or medical schools? It makes zero sense, Tucker. Now, let's take the best counterargument from the other side, especially in the Harvard context, right? Because that's the case before the Supreme Court. What opponents will say is that they allow legacy admissions. So how come you're just against affirmative action on the basis of race? You know what my response to that is? Great. Let's get rid of both of them. Let's yeah. go back to merit. And if you want to get rid of legacy admissions, I'll take that trade. My kid doesn't need a leg up to get into Harvard just because I went there. Let, leave it to the best playing field. May the best succeed. May the most academically successful succeed. May the most athletic succeed. That's America. That's what we need to revive. And conservatives actually need to be more bold about making that claim. That's what I would say. They, they certainly do, because it really is a foundational concept. If we're not all equal as citizens, then what's the point? Vivek, I appreciate your coming on and for so articulately defending that core American promise. Thank you. Thank you. So Brazil just held its presidential election. The runoff was Sunday. According to official figures, the incumbent president, Jair Bolsonaro, was narrowly defeated by his far left convicted criminal opponent, Lula da Silva. The margin of victory is less than 2%. Now, there are a lot of questions about this election, whether all the ballots were counted, for example. And Bolsonaro has not conceded. But questioning the election results in Brazil is no longer allowed there or even here. YouTube has just announced it will censor any, any posts that raise doubts about the vote total. In a statement, YouTube told us they have, quote, expanded our existing election integrity policy to prohibit content advancing false claims that widespread fraud, errors, or glitches occurred in the 2022 Brazil presidential election. Well, wait a second. The election is still ongoing. The incumbent is not conceded. How do you know the claims are, quote, false? Well, of course you don't. You are taking sides and using censorship to cement the results in place. This is propaganda. YouTube is interfering in a democratic election in a sovereign nation. How is that allowed? Well, there are also reports tonight that several Bolsonaro's supporters had been murdered in the streets. The footage is online. Obviously, all this is a major threat to democracy. But as of now, the Biden administration has not said a word about any of it. Why is that exactly? And why can't we know? Why can't an American citizen watch whatever he or she wants to? And why is YouTube trying to affect the outcome of a presidential election, a supposed democracy? Someone should ask them.
Well, the midterm elections are, well, let's see, a week from today, we thought we'd talk to our favorite physician to assess the health of one of the candidates. John Fetterman is running for Senate in Pennsylvania. We'll talk to him next. Also, Joe Biden has completely given up control of the United States southern portions to the Mexican drug cartels. We've just documented this from an upcoming episode of Tucker Carlson Originals, which premieres on Thursday. We'll show you some of it. Okay, so just imagine we had YouTube in the year 2000 election. So Bush is ahead by 580 votes in Florida. I'd like to see that the, the next day YouTube prohibits any questioning of George W. Bush's victory in the 2020 election. Somehow... Somehow I'm kind of skeptical that that uh, YouTube w- would do that. Okay, I'll uh, send send an invite here to Duvid in a second. Meanwhile, let's listen to some Amy Wax talking to Richard Hanino. You know, they're, they're just to live in fear. I mean, I feel guilty. If why I are they afraid of women? Why are they? I ask the same question. Why are we afraid of black students? Well, why, you know, why are we not willing to take charge and you know, do our job and say to them, no, you cannot engage in emotional blackmail. Emotional blackmail is you know degrading and debasing. And it's decadent. And you're trying to destroy what we've built over hundreds of years. We're not going to let you. Yeah. I mean, did, did men, I mean, if you went up to a, a group of men, say, I don't know, a long time ago, decades ago, and you were a woman and you started, you know, crying, I think the natural instinct, even at the time, say the 1950s would have been, you know, to feel some kind of sympathy and say, okay, you know, whatever you want, you, you win the argument. I think it's a, it's a trope of sort of a, a popular culture that, you know, women complain or women nag, women cry, men sort of just let, let them get their way. Um, but, you know, you couldn't imagine someone from the 1950s say, well, you couldn't imagine the women, I think, having the nerve to say. So just some extraordinary scenes playing out at the U.S. Supreme Court. Let me let me have a look at uh, some of the, the, the tweets regarding the affirmative action case. So we have this long seven-page transcript where Harvard tries to defend their personality scores. I mean, they're completely unable to be honest about what they're doing. They're, they're striking inability to explain away the low personal rating that Harvard admissions oppose on Asian Americans, right? It uh, doesn't look so good. <laughs> I mean, people just have an impossible time trying to, you know, rationalize and defend uh, affirmative action. Uh, Duvid, uh, welcome. Uh, how, how are you, Duvid? Hey, Bukashem. Excellent. So do, do you have any any response to affirmative action is it something that you think is possibly a good idea you don't have a strong opinion or you think it's a negative thing um it has good and bad parts to it you know saying uh cost and benefits overall i'm probably i don't say opposed to it more in favor of meritocracy but uh, you know there's certainly some positive aspects to affirmative action, especially if you already live in a multicultural place, if you're pushing against immigration, and you're you know you're more uh, trying to keep the European character of the U.S., uh, but you know if you're already on board with multiculturalism, you know I think affirmative action, um, you know comes as part of the package. Yeah. Uh, I get that. How did it go with uh, Claire Core? You went on her show, I think, this past week. Yeah, it was interesting. I saw it's interesting. Me and you have taken part of the same turn, and uh, you're talking about uh, the narrative voice and uh, identity issues. So uh, you know, and, and you know, I mentioned to you Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey, and uh, you've been taking a little different approach to the hero 
but in terms of uh, you know how do you find a narrative voice and connect to the readership that's what i've been focusing on a lot especially now that i'm trying to do more writing so claire invited me on to talk about that it was you know, kind of interesting she's a smart woman and uh you know she let me do most of the talking and share with uh you know whatever audience she has my ideas and gave me a little feedback and then today she messaged me again so i was like let's talk about the israeli elections so uh you know i kind of rambled mostly just uh giving backdrop explaining how the israeli political system works who are all these parties of what what happened in the last few years to uh you know what happened uh today yeah and uh what what are your thoughts on uh, on the uh the israeli elections yeah man I guess I'm kind of neutral. I'm, yeah, I'm pretty unsure. Yeah, I still. Yeah, I feel like I don't have that much of a dog in it. But I was following it, and you know, it seems like Netanyahu's likely to get back into power, and uh, and, and he was able to, uh, you know, boost the a new right wing Kahnist uh, party that you know, God forbid, uh, you know, is the most successful it's ever been. The replacement of like Naftali Bennett, and I wouldn't be surprised if this has. Uh, staying power you know if, if they're projected 14 seats like naftali bennett the various settler parties that uh in the current global political climate um it could be that khanism is good for right-wing israel especially teaming up with arabs you know if they're teaming up with arab nations and uh you know leadership through strength uh respect through uh God forbid the willingness to use violence that uh, you know, most American Jews, uh, you know, it's hard just to think about that. But in terms of Israel's a different place and it may be in their uh, best interest and in that they were able to oust the Russians, you know, the, the, the Netanyahu block. Now, almost the whole... what do you mean, though, that uh, Kahanist and uh, Kahanist uh, teaming up with Arabs? I mean, isn't the whole thing of Kahanism getting rid of the, the Arabs? In Israel, I'm talking about the Abraham Accords, that strong men, in terms of you know the previous narrative that uh, you know, you should support Israel because Israel's you know the only democracy in the Middle East and it shares Western values, um, and we're helping spread democracy in a you know a dark neighborhood, to saying like no Israel's in the Middle East and we're going to act like we're in the Middle East and have like a totalitarian government. So I don't mean with the Palestinians. God forbid what it would mean that Israel will deal with, you know, God forbid, an extremely strong hand against the Palestinians, but it will have allies among Arab nations like Saudi Arabia, um, possibly United Arab Emirates, maybe Egypt, in terms that uh, that uh, they also are totalitarian, gover totalitarian governments that crack down with an extremely strong hand against their opposition. So you don't see that uh, it might tip Israel into chaos and ruin Israel's improving relations with other Middle Eastern nations such as Saudi Arabia? I'm not sure. God forbid. I mean, you, you don't see what I'm saying? That uh, I mean, there is like a, a pan-Arab strategy and Palestinians are Arabs. But at the same time, there could be a consensus among elites that uh you know like okay like you turn a blind eye to my human rights abuses and i'll turn a blind eye to your human rights abuses 
and that it's going to be in the best interest of Turkey, Saudi Arabia, um, and and the Arab neighbors to you know have this kind of uh, you know unspoken agreement to turn a blind eye to each other's human rights abuses. Yeah, that uh, that makes sense. Uh, let me have a look here at an article in the New York Times. Okay, security training group asks Elon Musk to rid Twitter of anti-Semitism. So an organization that helps secure Jewish facilities across North America says Twitter has an anti-Semitism problem, asked its new owner to fix it. And this is a group that uh, provides security at all sorts of different Jewish organizations. And they say you can't have a digital town square if a significant part of the population feels that they're going to get lynched in it. And I don't think you can operate a a platform where people can share their views if you're going to be intimidated by how you know this or that group is going to feel. So this to me is not a strong argument. You can't have a digital town square if a significant part of the population feels they're going to get lynched in it. I think any Jew who is scared to death that they're going to get lynched in America today, the odds are 99.99% that they are delusional. I mean... Jews have never been safer than they are in, in America today, with you know a few exceptions in uh, some you know Jews who have to go into urban areas. Right, there's been a massive increase, in particular, in black crime. But overall, I think Jews are in an incredibly safe and blessed position in, in the United States. So this idea that a large number of Jews fear they're going to get lynched because of some mean tweets strikes me as absurd. Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, God forbid that's the direction of U.S. media. Like you were, you were, I mean, perhaps where you're up in your standards of your media coverage with your Paul Pelosi coverage, but uh, you're just the narrative to frame it that the reason why what happened to Paul Pelosi was exclusively due to the allowance of right-wing free speech. And, you know, so that's the narrative that uh, the media is going for. And, you know, God forbid, I think that's false. And it's probably going to fail and have pushback. And, and the problem for Jews is we're small people. And even though we're largely quite popular, there's a significant amount of people who don't like us. And there's a lot more people who don't like us than there are of us. So like if the, you know, the ADL statistics were always even at the all time low end of like uh, Northern Europeans who uh, exhibit uh, the lowest anti-Semitism of basically any people still has about 10% of them that that uh, uh, don't like us and would probably support uh, punitive action, like, you know, us being kicked out of the country, that, you know, that that's millions of people, tens of millions of, of Americans. So if you have a public square that allows for anti-Semitism for every Jew, there's going to be five, 10 people that don't like us. And, you know, so you could just say that's the price of being a Jew, that's the price of getting ahead in America, I don't mind free speech, um, but I mean, I think we've talked about this quite often in the past, like the Anglo norms of individualism, that uh, they don't want to censor other people. Uh, and, and if you give them an ultimatum, you know, like they, they might like their Jewish friends and they might disapprove of their minority that doesn't like us. But if you give an ultimatum that, uh, you know, that they have to uh, disavow and disassociate themselves from their anti-Semitic friends, they might choose uh, their anti-Semitic friend over the Jews. So it puts us in a big predicament. 
And I could see why the Jews are going to keep on pushing for this censorship strategy because it's scary to be a Jew. It's scary to put yourself out there and you know realize that there's so many people who dislike us and would even be open about it. Um, but uh, I mean, generally, I favor the free speech and think that we could thrive in uh, you know that that environment. And and you have to allow uh, you have to allow anti-Semitism to have free speech. Anti-Semites have to be able to share their opinions and their conspiracy theories and even try to convince larger parts of society to turn against us. And then you like Elon Musk, just as long as they enforce the law, as long as if you steal from me or you physically attack me, the law is going to protect me. Uh, that should be enough. And I think we talked about that also like in Russia or uh, there's a lot of totalitarian places where Jews are safer in terms of like uh, Russia and Eastern Europe where anti-Semitism is common. A lot of leading officials are you know, open anti-Semites, but law enforcement is very good. And if you attack a Jew, you're going to be caught and prosecuted as opposed to the West where Jews are very popular and among the elites, anti-Semitism is very small. But if you attack a Jew physically or commit a crime against a Jew, you're likely to get away with it. And you know, like, like uh, we're seeing in urban areas, you know, God forbid it's African-Americans, but, uh, you know, the level, like if a prominent person speaks badly about the Jews, they're going to be canceled. But if a randomly random homeless or crazy person beats us, beats us up, they're going to get away with it. Ah, there I am. Let me go back to this New York times article here. So this is not about the first amendment. This Jewish activist group says, and it is not about freedom. This violent speech must be monitored and policed like lives depend on it because they do. So this is, of course, completely absurd and contradictory. This is about the First Amendment. This is about freedom of speech and uh, violent speech. What is violent speech? We must fight. If I say we must fight to keep America free, we must fight to preserve our cultural traditions. Uh, Jews must fight to, you know, get ahead in a difficult world. I mean, you, some people say that is violent speech. But, uh, yeah, I I want anyone who is breaking the law by, for example, you know, trying to publicly say, hey, we're going to get together at this block and we're going to start murdering people, right? Obviously, that, that sort of incitement is illegal. But the mind games that this activist must say to claim, oh, you know, this is not about the First Amendment. This is not about freedom. This violent speech must be monitored and police like lives depend on it because they do. No, lives don't depend upon monitoring Twitter. Lives depend upon ameliorating significant conflicts of interest between groups. Right? You could have the most heinous commentary on Twitter and it's not going to lead to violence unless there are groups in the country who see that they have essentially life and death conflicts of interest with Jews those life and death conflicts of interests are what breed, you know, intergroup violence. It's not just uh, mean words on social media. Any any thoughts, David? Yeah, I mean, legally, it has to be a credible threat to violence to you know pass the law. And even minor talking about violence, like you know, God forbid, like like uh, wouldn't it be great if something violent happened to this person? or even saying, like, I would really like to do something violent to this person, generally is not considered a credible threat. I mean, if it's, you know, we could see if, uh, as it moves forward, 
I'll do the research and look into the actual uh, your laws or the case law to what substantiates a credible threat of violence. I'm sure, you know, with your background in uh, um, your reporting about pornography, you're probably aware of uh, you know, the reality of what is consi considered a credible threat of violence. And it's like the Kahanas doing well in Israel. And, you know, it's like, wake up. People don't like you. Like Judas Maccabeus, when he was arguing against uh, you know, Sula, he's like, you know, just wake up. These people don't like you. Get that you know, crap fantasy out of your head. There are tens of millions of people who don't like us. Um, you know, like, buy a gun. Uh, join your local J JDL. Support your local police station. And uh, you know, get these fantasies out of your head that everyone's going to like us or that policing speech is going to uh, uh, change things. So that's the direction, like in Israel, um, there could also be a divorce between Israel and American Jews, where Israel, like I, I've mentioned this for a while, that Israel could cancel the right of return on American Jews. American Jews, uh, if they shift further to the right, maybe Israel uh, um, you know, takes a more pro-Russian pro stance or different possibilities that could happen. Or uh, you know, if they do more, start turning a, a blinder eye to uh, Palestinian human rights, that it would cause the inability to have you know the relationship between American and Israeli Jews because the group strategy is uh, is too different. And uh, Israel might take the approach like uh, you know with the Arabs they're doing peace with and turn a blind eye to you know, God forbid to Jews in America getting beat up. And saying, well, that's what you get. That's why we have mandatory military service. You know, that's why you should spend three years in the army when you turn 18. So you don't complain about Twitter, people teasing you on uh, on Twitter. And then the Jewish neighborhoods, like you're in the Jewish neighborhood. We've talked a lot about uh, security and just saying, like, I know that a lot of people don't like us. I know that there's probably 500,000 people in L.A. that if they could and get away with it would beat up a Jew. You know, God forbid even kill us. And it's a cold world to think like that, but uh, you know that's how they think about it in Israel. And uh, you know to say that American Jews should look at it like that, uh, yeah, I'm not sure I'd go that far. But uh, you know I could see that there's an element of the Jewish community that would just accept that's the way it is. I don't, you know, like I'm not going to do censorship. We're just going to protect our community and, uh, and and say like if you beat up a Jew, we're going to find you and punish you. I don't care what you say. You could spread as much anti-Semitism as you want. But if you beat up someone wearing one of these, you know, like we're going to hunt you down and find you. So and, uh, I, I don't know if uh, I mean, I don't know if you'd agree with that sentiment or, or you at least feel in your community. There's a lot of people who feel that way. I, I'm not sure. Even, all to... Jews like censorship. You know, like even even the Kahanist in your area also want to censor Twitter. No, no. Most most Jews I know are, are not pro censorship. And, and so this hysterical outburst from this particular activist organization is not representative of most Jews because most Jews have a life, right? For most Jews, what's going on on Twitter, anti-Semitism on Twitter is not in their top 30 concerns, right? Most Jews, like most non-Jews, are primarily concerned about taking care of their families, making money, uh, getting an education, spending time with friends, pursuing their interests, all right, paying the bills, right? These are the concerns of most Jews. Anti-Semitism on Twitter is the concern of professional activist Jews who don't really have Judaism, right? Jews who are busy with Judaism 
are not particularly concerned about anti-Semitism on Twitter. There's no mitzvah in Judaism to fight anti-Semitism. That is pretty much solely the province of people who don't have a real Jewish identity, and so they try to make up for it by going on these ridiculous crusades. Like, normal Torah Jews are very, very busy. It is incredibly demanding to lead a, a Torah life. You have so many obligations on you, and none of these obligations consist in trying to police social media. Now, there are a tiny number of Torah Jews who are professional Jews and who get to make a living by fundraising about, you know, the, the Cossacks are coming on, they're, they're coming for us on Twitter. So there's a tiny number like that. But your, your regular Orthodox Jew or your just your regular non-Orthodox Jew has 30 other things in his life that he's far more concerned about than anti-Semitism on Twitter. What do you think? Yeah, I was thinking about, yeah, I mean, definitely agree. And, uh, you know, if if we think this out to think what's likely to happen and, you know, how will we be comfortable, like, you know, like the mapping project in Boston, where what happens when every time a Jew joins on Twitter and says our opinion that someone doxes us, gives an address and says, you know, God forbid this person's a horrible Jew and uh, wouldn't it be great if something bad happened to us? And said, well, could we live like that? And it's like, yeah, we could probably live like that. And maybe that's what Twitter would be like. You're like, okay, you know, you've been on blog. You probably are used to that type thing for, for decades now. And so you're like, yeah, you could live like that. And I think a lot of Jews, especially in the business world, uh, you know, you're like landlords and businessmen, are, are you know, Orthodox Jews are used to bad publicity. And, uh, but, uh, you know, it's certainly scary you can understand why the Jewish community would want to push for something different. But like, yeah, I could see that happening without censorship. You know, like every major Jew is going to be doxxed regularly and have uh, uh, trolls on us. And then uh, I don't know if you agree, like you think it, without censorship that that would be that would be likely and say even yourself. How would you feel if like every time you post on Twitter, some troll had like your address and a comment how, you know, how wouldn't it be great if something bad happened to you? Yeah, I, I think that that is, that's, that's uh, illegal. It's uh, an incitement to violence, and I believe that law takes takes care of that. And I, I think uh, doxing's a sure? bad thing, and I'm happy to see, you know, people who dox, uh, who, who get, uh, I'd like to see them suspended from social media, and anyone who makes incitements to violence saying wouldn't it be great you know if this person got hurt or got murdered yeah i'd like to see them banned from social media as well i don't think that's illegal though like i think that's protected that it has to be a credible threat to violence and doxing is not uh not a crime so i, I purposely said that point because if it's just the legality of free speech you are allowed to say things in you know in that sense like like i would be happy if something bad happened to this person it's not a credible threat of violence it's not illegal no and no no that wasn't what you said you, no 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 stop 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 you said if someone posts your home address and says wouldn't it be great if something violent happened to this person so you combined two things when you do those two things yeah i think you get in trouble well i don't mean the same person but i'm saying you're on twitter you have a bunch of followers, it would likely be different people who did it, or it might be the same person under different counts. But I'm saying it would be likely 
that both of those would appear, that you would be doxxed and maybe not the same person. If the same person did it, maybe that would be a credible threat, but that you know that in uh, but but both that would happen to us. Right. And all social media platforms consider this out of bounds. I mean, posting people's, you know, intimate, you know, private information, such as, you know, where they live, where they work, and then uh, making incitements to violence. Uh, no one, nobody defends that. It's not something that's peculiar to Jews. Well, I'm saying we do defend that's free speech. No, You're we don't. Social no, media no, generally... no, 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 no. I mean, it, it may... In certain, you can't combine those two things w- without getting into trouble. No social media platform is, is going to allow that. You're going to get banned if you participate in that sort of activity. Well, yeah, but I'm saying like the the Boston Mapping Project, that uh, or you know doxing sites that uh, you know to directly happen. Like yeah, so you favor some sort of moderation, and even though it's technically free speech that social media should prevent doxing and ban people for uh, doxing. But, I mean, the fact is currently that, uh, you know, like Kiwi Kiwi Farms was a doxing site, and, uh, you know, maybe you could have linked something towards that or someone. Uh, but I, I was saying I think we could function even if that uh, did exist. And, and you know, I, I was talking, like, on Mob Talk uh, with John Wolf that, like, mafia generally is in ethnic areas where you have the protection of being in a Jewish community. So, okay, these people know my home address or, you know, but like I live in the Jewish community, I have the protection of um, my neighborhood, uh, you know, where you know, a lot of secular Jews or individual Jews, I don't have that protection. I just have, you know, like a house, um, you know, my, my neighbors are African-Americans. They may or may not do anything to help me if someone uh, tried to do something to me versus if you lived in the Jewish community and had some, uh, you know, feeling towards uh, protection. It's it's pretty difficult uh, dilemma, and you may not even matter. You know, saying like, okay, like, you know, you post your stuff on Twitter and share, and it's going live, and um, you know, we had serious enemies on our Twitter that were like doxing and, and trying to be violent against us. We could probably deal with it. I'm, I'm not sure it's that bad. I think it more focuses on you know, God forbid, uh, Jewish media social programmers, people in the media that are pushing leftist ideas that are largely social programming. That's why I talk about Charles Charles Moskowitz um, quite often, which he didn't really seem to get, you know, maybe because like Kevin McDonald, the type thinking, and and like Kanye West, where anti-Semitism as a group strategy, where, you know, you realize that your political opponents are largely made up of Jews. So you use anti-Semitism as a group strategy. And then obviously the Palestinian question where uh, you, especially Jewish organizations like the Mapping Project, the BDS movement is largely being pushed by Palestinians. And you say, well, of course they're pushing it. They have a reason they're pushing it because they're bringing the war in Israel-Palestine to America. Okay. uh, Thanks, David. I'm going to, I'm going to run off now. Thanks for stopping by the show. Okay, I appreciate it. Anytime you want to talk and you'll see it's interesting. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Netanyahu's back in power, and that will probably mean you know, a lot more right-wing Jews out there with uh, you know, these talking points, and we'll see what happens you know, with elections next week, too. Okay, great. Thanks. So I've been uh, looking 
at this uh, new, new edition, new translation of the Quran, Tanakh. It's a, a translation of the Hebrew Bible, and it's by an Orthodox Jewish publisher. But even even the Quran translation has gone woke. Right? So from page 19, it notes, Hebrew is a grammatically gendered language, as though male-female is just a matter of social construction. Right? That's already woke. Right? Male-female is a biological reality. It's not just some social construction. Hebrew is a grammatically gendered language. I mean, here, here we got Orthodox Jews going woke. And masculine words and forms are often used to refer to both sexes. We have favored the use of gender-neutral forms in English. For example, people and children rather than men and sons. So even this Orthodox Jewish publication is going woke and, you know, preferring hey not use like masculine pronouns for God and for men. Like Hebrew is an incredibly, you know, male, female divided language, but they're they're watering it down to go woke. It's uh, sad. Oh, let's go to Tucker Carlson on the Paul Pelosi story. Here we go. To get to the bottom of the story around the attack on Paul Pelosi in San Francisco last Friday night, we couldn't and we still can't not gotten any clearer in the past 24 hours. Police in San Francisco, for reasons that are not clear and not defensible, are still refusing to release the body camera footage, which would answer most questions. And now there are more questions about why the Pelosi home was supposedly unguarded that night. According to CBS News, after January 6th, Nancy Pelosi moved hundreds of Capitol Hill police officers to field offices in Tampa and San Francisco. Did you know that? She's got her own police force now? The point was to protect members of Congress, presumably from Donald Trump's QAnon army. So there was a field office of the Capitol Hill Police in San Francisco, according to this news account, and yet somehow there was no security at the Speaker of the House's home on Friday night? That doesn't make sense at all. You know what doesn't make sense either? Is the supposed blog of the man accused, David DePappy. Take a look at it. It reads like a left-wing activist idea of what a QAnon extremist would post. So this guy was homeless, mentally ill, and addicted to drugs. Who paid to register the site? The first time the site appeared on archiving services was the day of the attack. What does that, what does that mean? Like, how could you explain that? Maybe there's a good explanation. I'm not alleging anything. Just asking questions, as they say. But those are fair questions to ask. But no one in the media is going to ask those questions. Why? Glenn Greenwald is an independent journalist. His work is on Substack. He joins us tonight to assess... Glenn, what, th- thanks so much for coming on. So everybody feels, obviously, um, pain thinking of an 82-year-old man being hit with a hammer. It's like the worst thing imaginable. Well, it's quite common now. But why should the rest of us sit here and accept obvious inconsistencies in a story that has public policy implications and not say anything? We obviously shouldn't, and I think this is the most important point about all of this, which is how many millions of people have been conditioned to believe that it's immoral or even some kind of reflection of mental illness, like you're a conspiracy theorist, if you don't immediately and unquestionably accept whatever story is told to you by institutions of authority. And the amazing thing about that, Tucker, is that this framework is being constructed 
by journalists, people whose primary purpose in life is supposed to be to question and challenge the claims of the powerful, and instead they're demonizing anybody who does so. Skepticism itself can never be wrong. Skepticism says there's evidentiary holes and there's faulty reasoning in what we're being told. Even if evidence does emerge later on to prove it, the skepticism itself was not just valid but necessary. So Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. The Russians blew up their own pipeline. Julian Assange is a criminal. I mean, maybe we're in the habit of just accepting the most ludicrous possible claims and moving on to the next thing. That's, it feels like where we are. I, I mean, I remember, you know, Victoria Nuland, who's the State Department official in charge of Ukraine, went before Congress and said, we're really worried that you, the U.S. and Ukraine have biological labs that are very dangerous, <laughs> and if they fall into the Russian hands, it can be a disaster. And anyone who said, wait, what does she mean, was instantly branded a conspiracy theorist. How many people were called conspiracy <laughs> theorists Me? because they question whether the vaccine works the way they were told to work or exactly. anything else? This is what they do is demonize questioning. <laughs> that was, I think you were on that night. What, biolabs in Ukraine? Shut up, Putin apologist! <laughs> what? Glenn Greenwald, always do like a palate cleanser, a, 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 the fresh air of sanity coming into the studio. Thank you very much. Since then, here's his appearance on CNN from earlier today. Well, let's talk about inflation because that's a big concern for voters. What do you think the biggest cause of inflation is? And, and should the Biden administration be doing more? No, I, I just do. I, I think that uh, that simply is also, Leah, let's talk about the trillions in, in massive tax uh, tax uh, cuts to the corporate uh, tax uh, structure as well. True. You know, trillions of dollars that have added to the deficit and, and now they still want to support those as well. True. I think in terms of being very serious about uh, addressing inflation is, is making sure that those rates are brought back into a line with what they, they should have been. Uh, where they're able to uh, fight uh, the, the, the deficit. How can his wife allow that? The lust for power really is the original sin. We're still not allowed to see John Fetterman's medical records. <laughs> you can kind of figure what's in there. But to assess his condition, we're joined by our top doctor, Dr. Mark Siegel. Hey, doctor, what do you, what do you make of this? Well, Tucker, that appeared confused at best. I mean, it's, he certainly doesn't have an indication there that he understands what the Trump tax cuts did four years ago. But I'm no economist. I noticed another part of the interview where he flat out said again, I'm not releasing my health records. You have transparent letters from doctors. Well, look, doctors are not that transparent in letters, and that's very vague. And I want to know the specifics of why he not only would have problems expressing himself at that debate with Dr. Oz, and not only have problems hearing, but he seemed to have problems with comprehension. He seemed to have problems juggling things at once, possibly impacting decision-making. So I want to see the MRI. I want to see what a neurologist wrote in the medical records. We know he has a bad heart. He's actually said that his stroke came from a blood clot from an irregular heart rhythm. I want to see the cardiologist record. I want to see yeah. the echo. Look, he's showing great courage here by coming forward. But there's another issue here, which is what about the voters of Pennsylvania? What do they deserve? <laughs> yeah. They, they deserve full disclosure. They deserve transparency. They deserve a, someone who is fit to serve, Tucker. Yeah, it's not all about John Fetterman's personal journey. Uh, Dr. Mark Siegel, I appreciate you coming on tonight. Thank you. Thanks, Tucker.
So Fetterman has obvious cognitive problems, but that's just the beginning of his problems. He has a track record of precisely zero achievement. His only real job was running a town called Braddock, Pennsylvania, which is worse off now than it was when he ran it. But that has not prevented, because the Senate's at stake, the leaders of the Democratic Party from showing up in Pennsylvania and telling you, no, no, he's great. Watch this. I know this job well. John is prepared right now to be an effective senator. And I think with uh, even more months of recovery, he's going to be uh, back to where he was. But I think he did really well. It'd be great to have John Fetterman to move forward, a positive agenda. By the way, it isn't about whether we have a Republican senator or not. It's whether or not we have an adult, somebody who's responsible. I thought he was really good. I thought he knew what he was doing. I thought he was strong. And look, Fetterman is Pennsylvania. I mean, Fetterman is everything that he appears to be. You know where he stands. He has great courage. He has no reluctance to say what he thinks. He's my kind of guy, and I think he's going to be fine. They'll say anything, literally anything. Now, Matt Oz is running against John Fetterman in Pennsylvania. He joins us tonight. Dr. Oz, thank you so much for coming on. So as a non-Pennsylvanian, I look at this. Hey, I'm going to skip the interview with the, the politician. And uh, the, the Paul Pelosi story is just weird. Right, what, what do what Greg Gutfeld has to say? Apparently. I wouldn't know. I don't care. So by now you heard about the attack on Paul Pelosi, a suspect in custody. Apparently he was a homeless illegal alien. He lived in an old yellow school bus. No truth to the rumor, it was Danny Partridge. <laughs> but don't knock a yellow school bus. We know how wonderful those things are. <laughs> Who doesn't love a yellow school bus, right? Can you raise your hand if you love a yellow school bus, right? Just, there's something about yeah, and, and most of us, many of us, went to school on the yellow school bus, right? And it's part of, it's part of our, our experience growing up. I went to school on a yellow school bus. It doesn't really bring up all these positive, overwhelming feelings for me. Mm, so true. She loves school buses almost as much as she loves Venn diagrams. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the media, you have Dems and talking heads, like there's any difference, desperately trying to make this about right-wing hate. Like, people on the right were always saying, hey, you got to go attack Nancy's husband with a hammer and don't wear pants. He was yelling out the things that we heard during January 6th, which is, where is Nancy? That's what the intruders going through the hallways on January 6th were shouting, Nancy, Nancy. This is... I don't recall ever hearing a bad word about Paul Pelosi, aside from it's not a good idea to drive drunk. But he is not being the subject of vitriol. I, I, I don't know anyone who, you know, lose Paul Pelosi, All right? So this doesn't stand Part up. Part of the January 6th insurrection. This has been going on for years. The attacks on her and this group of MAGA extremists have been not ending when Donald Trump left office. Yes. This is part of January 1st. It's MAGA extremists behind this because they always attract illegal alien nudists who live in school buses who think they're Jesus Christ. <laughs> hell. <laughs> Of course, the media can't be dumb enough to blame this on campaign ads, right? Looking at your candidates, Republican candidates have spent more than $116 million on ads that mention Speaker Pelosi by name in this cycle. If this is about the issues, why should you make it about the issues? Why not depersonalize it? In this moment, result, we are eight days result. out. Don't you think this needs to change? Why not Again. pull some of these ads? Why not just delete your why? tweet? Why not delete your brain? Oh, you should stop the ads just eight days out. How? What a coincidence! That
Wait, 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 wait. Does, does this apply to Democrats and their ire at Donald Trump? All right. How many ads did they make against Donald Trump? How many times they invoked how, how bad Donald Trump is? I, I, I don't recall the media saying that, uh, you know, Democrats should uh, stop attacking Donald Trump because it will just fuel, you know, violence. That you would use this for that suggestion. Do these people think before they say anything? Margaret, when will CBS depersonalize their content? Maybe start with young Sheldon. <laughs> Whatever that is. I don't know what that is. Or how about Colbert, who's done nothing but say uncivil stuff about Republicans? How many attacks did he cause? But see, I would never suggest that because I'm not a <laughs> idiot. All right. I'm sorry. I haven't had a lot of sleep. <laughs> I got a puppy and I'm just, I'm not, I'm not awake. But the people freaking out, of course, never did so after Scalise got shot, Brett Kavanaugh was almost assassinated, Lee Zeldin was attacked, a Trump supporter was run down and murdered. And remember how many jokes were made about Rand Paul getting his ribs broken? Ha, ha, ha. Those attacks disappeared, just like Jon Stewart and phone cards. <laughs> yeah, it's the Republicans that they call Nazis who are causing a lack of civility. But I get it, anything for an election. And the Dems are losing, which means some might have to get real jobs. And Democrats hate jobs. But remember, never let a crisis go to waste, even if it's someone's dented skull. That's why even with COVID, the Dems are forgiving student loans. See, nothing is ever connected. It so in Australia, there was a newspaper that was advocating getting vaccines. And this was a newspaper with a large number of indigenous Australians, a large number of aborigines in the area. I think it was in the Northern Territory. And they said, uh, come on, aborigines. We're talking about getting a jab, not getting a job. You, you don't have to fear getting a jab. It's not like that heinous thing where you, you go get a job. Okay, I wonder what's going on. I better check out a uh, little bit of Hannity here. And the critical midterms, you got it, are seven days away. And we begin with good news tonight for the GOP, along with an important warning to all voters across the country. That's coming. But first, the good news. In a shock to many Democrats, General Don Bolduck has now taken a one-point lead over the incumbent Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire's Senate race. This would be a huge Republican pickup. Now, General Bolduck, by the way, two Purple Hearts, five bronze stars. Uh, he and Governor Sununu will be on the show together on Thursday night. In the state of Washington, Republican Tiffany Smiley is now in a dead heat. It's an even race with Patty Murray, according to Trafalgar and another poll that just broke moments ago. And in Michigan's governor's race, get this, Tudor Dixon, she will join us in a moment. She has now taken a lead over Gretchen Whitmer out in Arizona. Carrie Lake is up big. Blake Masters is in a statistical tie with Mark Kelly. However, we have big news up from Arizona tonight in what is a huge boost for Blake Masters. The third party libertarian candidate just dropped out of the race and he endorsed Blake Masters for the Senate. Polls had the libertarian candidate, Mark Victor, polling at six points. In other words, that's another six anti-Mark Kelly points likely to go to Blake Masters, or at least a majority of them. And that now heavily uh, favors Blake Masters for a pickup with Republicans in Arizona. Meanwhile, we have more good news in Pennsylvania. Dr. Oz is up following Fetterman's disastrous debate performance. But if you're in Pennsylvania, you need to be careful. Democrats are now dumping 
tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars in one smear ad after another on Dr. Oz in this last week of the campaign. They are desperate to get that guy in the hoodie, the guy that never worked a day in his life, the trust fund brat that once legalized heroin injection sites paid for by taxpayers, no restrictions on abortion, a moratorium on fracking, wants to release convicted murderers. Anyway, that race shouldn't be close, but it- Okay, so Laponius says that for a professional broadcaster, Hannity sucks at speaking. So have you, have you looked at Roger Ailes' book on communication? The way that he would test whether or not someone would be a good professional broadcaster is he'd watch them with the sound off, bro. So- to get the full Sean Hannity effect, you need to watch with the sound off. It is, so pay attention in Pennsylvania. Herschel Walker continues to outpoll radical Raphael Warnock in Georgia. That race also remains close. And perhaps the biggest political news uh, comes out of the deep, deep blue state of New York, where Republican Lee Zeldin has now officially taken the lead in a brand new poll by Trafalgar. That's Robert Cahaley's group. Now, Lee Zeldin will be here uh, as he's campaigning with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. That's straight ahead. And now the numbers are really, both of them will join us. Uh, now the numbers are really encouraging. But let me be clear and let me pause right here. These races are very, very close. Most of them are within two points. So make no mistake, it doesn't matter if your preferred candidate is in the lead, if your preferred candidate is behind, if your preferred candidate is in a dead heat tie. Anything can happen. Don't think for a second this is a slam dunk. In other words, every voter needs to do their part. Take nothing for granted and don't forget what is at stake. Okay, so you are the message. This is actually a pretty good book by the late Roger Ailes, the man who developed Fox News. So he says, look in a mirror and study your own face. Begin to talk about a political issue and see which part of your face moves and which doesn't. Using the same subject matter, Repeat the conversation. However, imagine that you're now speaking to a child. See if your face softens, if your eyes become more expressive, if there is a tendency to care more that the listener understands what you are saying. Most people tend to use more facial expressions when talking to children. So I need to start talking to you like your little children. Let the little children come unto me. Okay, here are the 10 most common problems in communication. All right, this, this is a good book here by Roger Ailes. All right. Lack of initial rapport with listeners. Stiffness or woodness in the use of the body. Presentation of material that is intellectually oriented. Right? And the speaker forgets to evolve the audience emotionally. Speaker seems uncomfortable because of fear of failure. Poor use of eye contact and facial expression. Lack of humor. Speech direction and intent unclear due to improper preparation. Inability to use silence for impact. A lack of energy causing inappropriate pitch pattern, speech rate, and volume, and use of boring language and lack of interesting material. So you're asking, 40, what does it mean you are the message? 40, Richard Spencer's on with Ethan Ralph right now. 40 is a much better speaker than Roger Hannity. Roger Hales effed out when he passed on 40. Talk dirty to me, 40. Yeah, oh, Glenn Bentley says, I read that book. Some of it was good. Yeah, some of it is good. So I want to see Richard Hanania in a prime time spot at uh, Fox Bro. Good evening and welcome to 40 tonight. <laughs> okay, you're the message. What does that mean? It means that when you communicate, 
it's not just the words you choose to send to the other person that make up the message. You're also sending signals about what kind of person you are by your eyes, your facial expression, your body movement, your vocal pitch, your tone, your volume, your intensity, your commitment to your message, your sense of humor, and many other factors. The receiving person is bombarded with symbols and signals from you. Yeah, we're always transmitting. And if you're an addict, you're transmitting the disease. If you got intoxicated, you're transmitting God. We're always transmitting like a 50,000 watt KFI radio station. So everything you do in relation to other people causes them to make judgments about what you stand for, and what your message is. You are the message comes down to the fact that unless you identify yourself as a walking, talking message, understand you're constantly transmitting, you miss that critical point. The words themselves are meaningless unless the rest of you is in synchronization. So if you're uncomfortable with who you are, it will make others uncomfortable too. So I was talking to a fellow sex addict the other day, and I was saying that the most important part of recovery is becoming comfortable with yourself. So if you did shameful things in the past, you need to be able to talk to someone about them and to relay honestly what you did without getting all tensed up, without your voice you know, croaking in shame without you getting a shame attack, your face blushing red. You need to be able to talk about everything you've done so that you are at ease with yourself. That's the best way to minimize the chances of having your life disrupted by addiction. So generally speaking, people with secure attachment patterns, meaning people who move towards people who treat them well and who are good for them, and people who naturally move away from people who treat them badly, and people who have a positive image of themselves, right, secure attachment, these people are the least likely to be stuck with addictions. On the other hand, people like me and the way I was raised with insecure attachment patterns where I just obsess over relationships that are important to me, or avoidant attachment patterns where you feel like just any kind of attachment is just way too scary, you just prefer to be on your own. Well, that creates a vast hole that addictions kind of rush to fill in. So over the past few years, I've learned to become increasingly comfortable with myself by you know, attending the appropriate 12-step meetings. Uh, five to 10, 15 minutes of daily meditation has helped. Uh, getting in a routine. I'm someone who needs routine. Chaos is not good for me. So I have a disciplined routine. And that, that helps me achieve a comfort level. Having money in the bank, regular money coming in, greatly helps comfort level having good relations with my family friends wider community neighbors acquaintances right getting along with people having the best possible relations with everybody that i interact with that does a tremendous amount towards my feeling of comfort uh, developing my health working out getting you know decent sleep getting plenty of exercise you know, eating right stuff like that and then noticing what makes me agitated and journaling about it and, and working it through. So the more comfortable I am, the less likely I am to fall prey to you know ridiculous addiction. So I used to try to soothe my anxiety by pursuing sex, by pursuing pornography, by attention seeking, by you know going to extremes in politics and religion. But if I could just calm down, then I tend to make better decisions. Luke recommends Alexander Technique for the face. Oh, no, Alexander Technique is a holistic technique. The Alexander Technique is a way for noticing how you react to a stimulus and whether your reaction serves you. So many people react to a stimulus by their head, you know, jutting forward, tipping back, compressing the neck, 
Now, one shoulder tends to be, you know, higher than the other. One hip is going to be rotated forward, you know, wrenching the whole back. Uh, people carry all sorts of unnecessary tension around the eyes, around the lips, and, and around the forehead. Like, look at this beautiful forehead. Do you see my forehead crinkling right now? Do you see all sorts of unnecessary tension around my eyes? Do you see the waves of tension just radiating from my lips? I'm a man who is at ease in the world. I'm at ease with me. I'm at ease with you. I'm at ease with this beautiful community that we're creating. And so that radiates from, from my face. Facial Alexander techniques, disgusting but effective. Well, here's, here's a basic Alexander. Let go of everything that you think you know. So notice I took that in. I let go of everything that I think I know. I have moved from a state of judgment when I do live streams, I'm frequently in a state of judgment. And now I'm just in a state of awareness, just observing what's going on around me, and I don't need to judge it. When I do that, my, my face relaxes, the, the neck and the back unlock, the breathing comes easier, like I get more width and more length as I let go of that unnecessary tension. And so the Alexander Technique is a way of noticing how you react to a stimuli and then learning how to let go of those responses that don't serve you. We tend to build up body armoring, particularly as we get older. Right? Body armoring are these unnecessary tension patterns. So if you can learn to notice what your unnecessary tension patterns are, then start to release them, you will feel more at ease in the world. Other people will have more comfort with you because you are more comfortable with yourself. You will be less compulsive, you know, less driven. You will make uh, better decisions. You will be calm. All right, so... It's dangerous for an addicted personality to be struggling, right? If you have a tendency towards addiction, you want to minimize how much struggle you do. And when you do struggle, you want it to be in like an appropriate venue, such as you're, you're struggling to lift a weight or you're, you're struggling with, with a workout or you're struggling to learn Latin, right? You don't want to be going through the day struggling because you will be much more likely to relapse. It's like, oh, you know, I've done good. I just deserve to feel good right now. You know, let me check out some pornography. So Roger Ailes says he would travel to various cities to evaluate TV talk show hosts who spend time with them. But before meeting the first time, he'd check into a hotel, watch their programs on TV and with the sound turned off for five to 10 minutes. So if there was nothing happening on the screen in the way the host looked or moved that made me interested enough to stand up and turn the sound up, then I knew the host was not a great TV performer. So Roger Ailes would watch the screen for interesting expressions on people's faces, sudden movement, laughter, or whatever made me say, hey, I wonder what's going on here. I want to reach over and turn the sound up. So the less uh, unnecessary layering of muscular tension you have, the more alive you'll be to the movement. And so one of the possible downsides to the Alexander technique is you become much more transparent. So when I do this show, I, I read your comments, you can... You can read literally the comments on the left side of the screen, but you can also read the effect of the comments on my face because there's very little unnecessary muscular tension on my face. When I read your comments, I, I react, and you can see my reactions to your comments just flowing across my face. So if you have access to videotape, ask someone to interview, then turn the sound down, watch yourself. You're still interesting. Place a mirror by the TV telephone. Watch yourself as you speak and as you listen. Do your eyes and face look engaged and lively? 
So when you let go of that unnecessary muscular tension, which can be in your forehead, around your eyes, around your lips, right? When you let go of that muscular tension, you're going to look much more engaged and lively. Right? Do you gesture when you speak? Do you ever smile? So people who are the best communicators communicate with their whole being. They are animated, expressive, interesting to watch. So tape an ape by a tape of a famous actor. Reading selections from literary works. Record yourself reading those same selections. Compare your vocal quality. So tape an ape. Tape the best professionals. Try to imitate the pros. Try to develop a range for your voice. So you start down here. Range or vocal variety should be your goal too. What makes a voice interesting, alive, and distinctive, just as you'd watch. right? So you have that uh, vocal variety, but mainly you want that uh, climbing the staircase. right? You want ascending melodies. Just as you'd watch a tape of Jack Nicholas swinging a golf club to help you perfect your own swing, or of Martina Navratilova swinging a tennis racket to improve your backhand, you can do the same with recordings by professionals. So you get that ascending melody there. If you care, they care. So if you care about what you're talking about, other people will care. If you care, your listeners will care. Your voice will automatically move up and down. You'll automatically start ascending the staircase. Right? If you don't care, your voice will flatten out and be boring. In every communication situation, ask yourself, what am I feeling here? How do I feel about what's going on? So right now I'm enjoying myself. Being committed is crucial. Very few people freeze up or are able to speak or go into a monotone when they feel strongly about something. Roger says, when I speak to others, I'm always in control of time. That's rate of speech, pauses, space, where and how I move, eye contact, emotional messages that my eyes send, my voice volume, pronunciation, changes in pitch and tone, my state of mind, calm, happy, upbeat, self-confident, my attitude, unthreatened, open-minded, friendly, the flow of dialogue so that I know when and how to insert my ideas and opinions and my feelings. So he says, I can correct 15 communication technique problems with one ounce of energy. It's fundamental to success. The right energy, you are absorbing what others are broadcasting to you. You project enthusiasm. Most so-called speech problems clear up automatically if you are energetic and enthused. So a good communicator's energy is a life force. It's a vitality. Properly focused energy comes across as positive and magnetic intensity rather than a negative overwrought intensity. So it's an inner flame that we all display where we sincerely believe something we talk about. We're committed intuitively. We know true energy when we see it and hear it in a communicator. It's the energy associated with a Harry Truman, Truman or a Martin Luther King or a Winston Churchill. We all know people who radiate this life force in abundance. When people with energy speak or even listen, they don't display inattention or lack of focus in the eyes or lack of interest in the face. People in love have energy. People who love their jobs have energy. If your energy is up, your rate, volume, and pitch will be appropriate to the situation. If you're enthusiastic, if your posture is good, if you're friendly, if you're comfortable, then you have the right kind of energy. So Roger says when he first started speech coaching, he did it the old-fashioned way with drills and practice on rate, pitch, and volume. My clients made progress, but it was slow and tedious. Today, I do it organically. I work on the energy level of the communicator. So that was the, one of the challenges for Dennis Prager when he got into radio. The, the people who are in charge of the station, the program directors would keep telling him, more energy, more energy, more energy, more energy. 
So that, that's one of the, the big differences between the professional broadcaster and the amateur is that the professional broadcaster has those ascending melodies, speaks with a tremendous amount of energy. So compared to how you'd speak in, in normal life, you need to speak with at least five times, if not 10 times the amount of energy on a YouTube live stream or on the radio or on TV. So what's the energy level? Is it appropriate to the situation? What are your goals? What are you trying to say? What do you mean? How do you feel? How much do you care? If you're in touch with these things, your technique will improve quickly and dramatically. Most people think that their energy level is much higher than it is. Now he says 80% of our clients are surprised when they first see themselves on tape. They say, I didn't know I was so boring. That most people come across with insufficient energy. Most 99% of us are kind of inhibited. And so we don't really go far enough with our energy. Look forward, I'd love to play poker with you. Don't play poker. <laughs> yeah, my face is way too transparent. You'd you'd take me to the cleaner. Relaxed and at ease with the world, harmony of mind, body, and spirit. Roger Ailes always knew the right moment to pinch a bottom. Because I've never known of a person being fired because he refused to talk to the press. So when in doubt, don't talk to the media. Remember, the media has nothing to lose by interviewing you. On the other hand, you could have plenty to lose. Okay, let's uh, get back to Greg Gutfeld. It's just exploited. But even without an election, they'd probably do the same damn thing. They cherry-pick the psycho's political positions to pretend he's conservative, you know, like Liz Cheney used to do. <laughs> what did he compare her to him yeah i hope so <laughs> i hope you think that you idiot meanwhile republicans focus on crime home invasions are up as are murders rapes and robberies and in places where politicians advocated defunding the cops we can call that a political take too except this one is rooted in reality i suppose republicans could have made up stuff as well like there was a wooden gavel found at the scene with chocolate haagen-dazs ice cream on the handle <laughs> but they didn't and so the media screeches like Kamala having her feet tickled. <laughs> How dare you bring up violent crime, even after a violent crime is committed? Right. If you righties continue this fact-based <laughs> we're going to smack all of you with hammers. So you're only supposed to talk up violent crime for fake violent crimes. So there are lessons here, but politicians in the media, they aren't interested. It's about only political outcomes. Last week, it was pretending John Fetterman's brain worked. <laughs> now, now it's the Pelosi attack was MAGA. January 6th, and hate speech, it's a constant threat because it's code for criticizing Democrats. But as long as they win in November, then nothing ever needs fixing. And that's why the criminally deranged are still on the street. That's why this happened. There's nowhere for the mentally ill to go. And bottom line, if Pelosi had just been another victim, who knows if they'd even give a damn at all about this. If it was just an Asian lady, we'd likely be told beating people with a hammer is a misdemeanor. And the media helped. Yeah, good, good point there. Okay, so here's another book on a similar theme. It's the autobiography of the founder of 60 Minutes Australia. Say it with feeling, Gerald Stone. Megastars, media czars, trailblazing TV memoirs of a prime time warrior. So after the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, Gerald Stone got a little concerned about living in the United States. He thought it was too dangerous, so he moved his family to Australia. Now, his father was a Russian-Jewish-American bootlegger. 
Then uh, Gerald Stone and family moved to Australia in 1962. And he noticed that Australians tend to be much more emotionally repressed than Americans. So Americans tend to much more wear their emotions on their sleeves. So I heard one American sound Dennis Prager's radio show that she went to the Sydney Opera House and after a performance, she was the only one to stand up and cheer. So this exuberant display of emotion, much more of an American thing than an Australian or an English thing. So journalists in any country tend to treat the news the same way. But as a newcomer, I brought a precious asset, a fresh pair of eyes, along with the sharpened perceptions of a stranger eager to make his mark. My writing style stood out as different from what Australian readers were used to. I made an extra effort to explain things that my colleagues regarded as too common to bother with. And as many Australians were still burdened by the reticence of their British heritage and unused to discussing their feelings, that reluctance to delve too deeply was reflected in the press coverage. As a recently arrived American, I was constantly made fun of for being part of a population obsessed with psychoanalysis, but my background made me more prone to pursue issues most of my Aussie colleagues treated as taboo. So he noted Australians treated their beaches with the reverence of open-air reverence cathedrals. When mates got together, they did so on the basis of absolute equality in Australia. Americans tend to be earnest and idealistic. Australians tend to be more reserved and skeptical. So Australians are less burdened by sentimentality. They have less of an over-eagerness to please. They're more skeptical, more quick on the draw with a deflating remark. In uh, 1964, John Lennon said to Gerald Stone, how'd you get into this country? I thought they had a white Australia policy. And uh, in the 1960s, he interviewed a theater manager who said, if someone's got abo blood, he's got only one place, and that's with the other darkies. They all smell, they're ignorant, they drink too much. People from the un- outside just don't understand what they're like. So Gerald Stone became entranced by TV and its far greater emotional impact compared to print. Something as simple as a momentary pause or a tightening of the lips could alert the public. So he met David Frost. He noted he was as charming and charismatic in person as he came across on screen, but not for a moment longer than he needed to be. The veins in his temple were as easy to read as a stopwatch, flashing purple to let you know precisely to the second when your time with him was over. And it was back to business for him, moving on to devote himself to another one of perhaps a dozen other projects. So he was the quintessential TV personality skilled performer trained to communicate with his viewers at every level not just through the words he chose but the varying rhythm and pitch of his intonation more than with voice alone he spoke with his eyes the tilt of his head his every expression and gesture journalists might be highly trained in the art of gathering information but they weren't half as effective communicators as david frost the facts don't sell themselves take someone willing and able to use every trick in the trade to get their message across to say it with feeling. So Gerald Stone hired his TV reporters at 60 Minutes Australia, wanted them to be as warm and animated in their delivery as they might be at a lively dinner party with close friends. Whatever the story, tell it in a way that makes each viewer think you are speaking directly to them with such feeling that they can't help but listen and care. The TV stardom is the ability to come across as the kind of natural, friendly person anyone could easily relate to. Stone says Australians tend to take life less seriously than Americans, much less prone to hold strong views on personal choice issues such as sexuality, morality, religion. 
Right, let's get a little bit more here from Greg Gutfeld. Helps by amplifying the fake origin to avoid the real one, which is the mental health crisis, which goes ignored like Joy Behar's sex strike. <laughs> their their state, California state logo should be a bear in a straitjacket. And with all the homeless in campus, their new state motto should be the golden shower state. <laughs> their state bird, a $1.7 million toilet. I know it's not a bird. But they don't have a they don't have a state appliance. So the suspect was a homeless psychotic, like tens of thousands on the streets. And they're a danger to you, but now also to politicians' spouses. The things that happened to everyone else finally happened to someone who matters: the husband of the speaker. He's not a cop, a retiree, or a student. He's rich and powerful. And if they throw the book at the suspect, they sure as hell better do the same for every other felon. Because this is a crime, and it's time for punishment, and not just for the important victims, but for everyone. But with Dems, will they care? The perp already served a purpose. He gave Biden something to talk about between lying about gas prices and lying that he was raised by Puerto Ricans. <laughs> so a mentally deranged, drug-abused, naked nutbag finds his way into the Pelosi home and immediately stops at one talking point, which is their idea of investigative reporting. But like so many crime victims, Paul and Nancy may never be the same. Maybe it's time to move to Florida. Okay, let's uh, let's get serious, guys. There's a threat to our democracy out there. What are we going to do about it? Marco Rubio was suspending Jed Bush dropped out, ending his dream. The last viable Republican opponent, Ted Cruz. Voters have a right to know. No, no, you're the liar. You're the lying guy up here. It was really ugly. I mean, it got as deep into the mud as I can remember any primary contest getting. I mean, Donald Trump was was you know implying that that Ted Cruz's wife was unattracted. A picture is worth a thousand words. I don't get angry often, but you mess with my wife, you mess with my kids, that'll do it every time. Donald, you're a sniveling coward and leave Heidi the hell alone. If Ted Cruz brought a knife to the fight, Donald Trump brought a nuclear-tipped bazooka. You know, his father would... Wait, why, why is it like the ugliest thing ever to imply that someone's wife is unattractive? I can think of a million things more ugly than implying that someone's wife is unattractive. I'm not saying it's very nice, but that's hardly the most heinous thing that somebody could say. Come on, man. Was with Lee Harvey Oswald prior to Oswald's being, uh, you know, shot. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. What, what, what is this right prior to... Cruz had watched as this man humiliated him humiliated his wife humiliated his father guess what nobody can humiliate you right that's up to you the more seriously you take yourself the more pretensions you have all right the more you have an exaggerated sense of your own importance then the more wide open you are to being humiliated if you are humiliated it's not because of other people it's because you are out of touch with reality you have an exaggerated sense of your own importance you have an exaggerated sense of your own skills right you are the delusional one setting you up for humiliation someone who lives in reality someone who is comfortable with his fallibility who recognizes how flawed he is who, who recognizes you know how many embarrassing things he, he said and done uh, that type of person is uh, much less liable to feel humiliated. 
in the most brazen and and despicable way. And he felt at that moment that if he was going to lose, he needed to get a few things off of his chest. The man is utterly amoral. Morality does not exist for him. This is this is normal when people are in intense competition, right? When we are in intense competition with others, we are most likely to think negatively about them and to pronounce these these sweeping judgments. All right, someone who's just lost a you know very challenging, difficult campaign, of course, he's going to come out and say heinous things. If this man were to become president. Think about the next five years. I mean, Ted Cruz is, is a political hack. I mean, I, I like him, but he, he's another politician who says and does ridiculous things, just like any other politician. Uh, for him to, to climb on you know, the, the moral high ground here is silly. The boasting, the pathological lying, the bullying. Think about your kids coming back and emulating us. If your kids are emulating the president of the United States, there's something wrong with you. Why aren't your kids emulating you? Why aren't your kids emulating people in your community? Right? If your kids are so vulnerable that uh, their role model becomes the president of the United States, you as a father have done a lousy job. But people don't want to go, oh, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I've made some bad choices. I, I just read this on Twitter that... If you don't like where you are in life, it's because you've made some bad choices. And the reason you've made some bad choices is that you've had some mistaken beliefs. So what mistaken beliefs have caused you the most damage in life? Now, that kind of soul searching is not as easy. It's not as quickly, emotionally as satisfying as blaming your problems on someone else. But if you're not where you want to be in life, it's because you've made some wrong decisions. And many of those wrong decisions have been based upon mistaken beliefs. So think about what beliefs have you held that are mistaken and have cost you dearly. The danger of what was unfolding between Cruz and Trump at that time was you're a liar, no, you're a liar. Okay, you get a lot of that in politics. But in this case, what, what Ted Cruz was saying was absolutely the truth. And a lot of people in in sort of political circles in D.C. knew it to be so, but weren't saying a word. In the end, Ted Cruz would do the one thing Donald Trump hadn't back in Iowa. Concede. We gave it everything we've got. Ah, uh, what, a, what a great man. He, he finally conceded. I right, need to hit this Politico article. The Supreme Court is poised to handcuff universities. Right, any law... He's going to handcuff people, right? You say rape is illegal, you're handcuffing rapists. You say murder is illegal, you're handcuffing murderers. If you say cheating, lying, stealing are illegal, then you are handcuffing cheaters, liars, and thieves, right? That, that uh, a law handcuffs entities and, and individuals is hardly a strong argument against having law. We already know what happens to college admissions when affirmative action is banned. Yes. We have people who can't survive without affirmative action, and uh, they don't do so well. All right? 
So I've got a recommendation here. The Right to Speak. Working with the Voice. Patsy Rodenberg. Okay, thanks for the for the recommendation. Uh friend says we should retain affirmative action, but uh, we must make those who whom it benefits write essays about how they acknowledge their intellectual inferiority and what steps they will take to prove their merit. <laughs> for decades, the Supreme Court has ruled affirmative action can be used. Great. Now the court has shifted. As a longtime college administrator, I know the practical implication this will bring. It will close the door to many black and Latino students who cannot objectively gain admittance to top universities. So affirmative action bans have already been implemented in nine states. Admissions officers are not allowed to take an applicant's race or ethnicity into account. Yeah, but they get around it. Right? It takes them a year or two but they figure out ways to get around it. They saw declines in the proportion of new undergraduate students from groups that have historically been underrepresented in higher education, including black and Latino students. Why aren't we decrying those groups who are underrepresented in the National Basketball Association or underrepresented in the rap music industry or underrepresented in the National Football League? Why is it simply marked out by the will of heaven that there are areas of life where blacks absolutely should dominate and we should never question that. That's just how it is. That's God's will. But God forbid, if there are areas of life where blacks don't do as well as the average, then there must be something wrong. Areas of life where blacks do far better than the average, that's just natural good. We should uh, welcome that. But any area of life where blacks don't do as well as the national average, oh my God, that's the worst thing ever. So this this new law is just going to handcuff universities, just going to crush them. So sad that uh, a law is going to restrict things people do. Well, you know what? Who else gets crushed if you don't stop affirmative action, right? Uh, Non-black students who would otherwise get admitted but get rejected by better universities because someone who doesn't have their qualifications, who doesn't have their test scores, right? Someone who hasn't done the work and achieved, right? Gets promoted on the basis of race. But the voters chose another path. We are suspending our campaign. Ted Cruz was an object lesson in what the Trump movement could do, even to a fairly reputable, rock-ribbed conservative like Ted Cruz. You saw Trump. Guess what? There are social movements in the world. Sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down, right? You need to pay attention to what's going on around you. So whether you're in elementary school or you're at work or you're at the club, right? sometimes there are movements that uh, coalesce behind a particular individual and they sweep everything in their path. Right? But nobody just solely experiences success. Even these unstoppable movements and individuals eventually experience failure and humiliation. This is just part of life. This is just how things work out. These are just 
basic social dynamics. Sweep crews onto the sidelines. That was a lesson for the entire party. You know, if that could happen to Ted Cruz, that could happen to anyone. Yeah. Politician doesn't stimulate people to fear him. He's not going to be a very effective politician. I've just been reading Peter Aykroyd, his book on the history of England. He makes the point that good people rarely make good kings. So good people rarely make good presidents. Good people rarely make good politicians. Good people rarely make good professional athletes. Right? The kindness and the niceness and the empathy and the sensitivity that you would like from an acquaintance, a co-worker, a neighbor, right? these don't tend to be qualities that bring out the best in presidents. Presumptive GOP presidential nominee Donald Trump is celebrating Donald Trump is promising to make a big effort to unify the GOP over his presumptive nomination. Can the candidate who lives by slash and burn calm Republican jitters to the most As the presumptive nominee arrived in Washington. Trump meeting with Republican lawmakers on Capitol Hill today. Closed door meetings with the Republican lawmakers. The Republican establishment faced a decision. They'll try to reassure some members of Congress. Republicans had a crossroads. So before Donald Trump, I don't know, do you remember the despair that, that I, I felt as a Republican in 2014, 2015, prior to Trump? Right? The, the Republican Party was on a highway to hell. The Republican Party was on a road to nowhere. Right? They faced the prospect of humiliation and loss. There seemed to be absolutely no way that a Republican could defeat Hillary Clinton. Then Donald Trump comes along and shows them a path out of the wilderness, shows them a way forward, right? gives them a political platform of fair trade and immigration reduction, populism in essence, shows the Republican Party a way forward so that they can win and not become irrelevant. And it wasn't always very nice when he pointed out the path forward, but there are a lot of times in life where I've received, you know, insights, guidance from people who weren't being very nice, but they were saying what I needed to hear. Donald Trump was saying what Americans needed to hear, what Republicans in particular needed to hear, and that he said these things in a not very nice way is of tertiary importance compared to the path forward that he showed for the country and for the party. In 2016, you can win power, but it's going to be with this person who has said all of these different things over the years that are offensive, who has a spotty record on business and politics, you can win Oh, so as opposed to, you know, other politicians who don't have a spotty record? I mean, Donald Trump's record is not, you know, more heinous than other people who've risen to president of the United States. It's more vulgar. Yeah, Donald Trump has been more vulgar than other presidents. Big deal. Power, but it comes at this cost. Senate Leader Mitch McConnell and Speaker of the House Paul Ryan were both deeply skeptical, even as they publicly endorsed Trump. In 2016, I mean, there were countless Republicans who were very, very nervous about uh, what a Trump presidency would mean for the country and for the party. There was a lot of concern. One phone call would help change that. Mike Pence gets the phone call late one night. The familiar voice of Donald Trump. That doesn't change it. 
I, I mean, this idea that, oh, selecting Mike Pence as vice president, and that all these fears, concerns, skepticism, right, just went away because he, he chose Mike Pence. That's nonsense. Trump saying, Mike, it's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. And Pence says, I don't know if there's a question in there, but if there is, the answer is yes. And they laugh and he goes on to join the ticket. Donald Trump making it official that Indiana Governor Mike Pence will be his running mate. The fact that Mike Pence joined the ticket implicitly said that if I can tolerate this man, so can you. Well, he lent his credibility in evangelical Christian circles. And he lent his credibility because he got something out of it, right? Mike Pence wasn't just some human sacrifice, right? People... If they want something bad enough, they're willing to sacrifice. So Mike Pence was willing to sacrifice his dignity, his ease, the, the happiness and joy of his wife in order to reach for the great prize of being vice president of the United States and very possibly president of the United States if something happens to Donald Trump. So you want something really big, it's usually going to require a really big sacrifice. That's it. Bye-bye.